If you will, turn in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 4 as we continue to make our way through the history of the early church. How, how fascinating it is as we look at the way that God has pulled together this early body of believers. And as we'll see today, not without its trials and tribulations. I thought about this story. I'm sure I've shared it before, but I thought it was a maybe a, a fitting story. I, I remember reading about this young fellow who was excited because he'd been invited to go to a costume party with his friends out in the backwoods in the sticks in the rural area. He was so excited because he had found the, what he considered to be the perfect devil suit. I mean, it was complete full body red, you know, flaming red, complete with little horns and pointed tail, and even came with a matching pitchfork. He was so excited. In fact, he was so excited, he failed to check his gas gauge when he jumped in his sports car and sped off into the countryside for this uh, costume party that night. And as he was driving along, lo and behold, out there in the woods, uh, as night was falling, his car began to sputter. And he looked down with horror and realized his car had run out of gas in the middle of nowhere. And to add to his chagrin, as soon as he got out of his car and started walking to try to find some help, he heard the thunder and he saw the lightning beginning to flash and realized that there was a terrible storm bearing down upon him. And so he realized he's in trouble, so he takes off running down the road, complete with his pitchfork in his hand, and he's looking for refuge as the winds are blowing and howling and the lightning is flashing through the trees. And he looks up ahead in the darkness and he sees a building with a light on it and he figures that's that's a safe place to run and so he runs towards the closest door he can find just as the lightning is striking right around his heels and he rushes into this little country church that just happens to be in the middle of a revival service and wouldn't you know the door that the young man runs into would be one of those side doors just like that that's right there in front of the pulpit. So he rushes in. Here he is standing there in his red devil suit huffing and puffing because he's out of breath with a pitchfork in his hand. Well, the pastor jumps over the pulpit and runs straight out the back door with all the congregants falling right on his heels where the choir is kind of trapped up here in the choir loft. And they're looking there. They begin to file out as fast as they can, almost running over top and one another and wouldn't you know what the last one trying to get out would be the chairman of the deacons and he got his choir robe hung on his seat and he's standing there yanking on his choir robe looking at the, this guy with the devil's suit looking at him with a pitchfork and the deacon says hold it mister it's not what you think I've always been on your side so you know and, and I apologize to the deacons I realize I could have put a pastor in that role okay but the fact is if I was titling the message this morning, I think I would probably title it When the Devil Goes to Church. You know, it, it would be wonderful if the church had the benefit of highly sophisticated electronic equipment that could detect, just like at the airports, they detect metal and things like that and explosives and what have you. But wouldn't it be great if the, the church of today was able to have an electronic device that would detect the presence of the devil trying to infiltrate the fellowship of the believers. In other words, sneaking into the church in one of the believers. And be handy, would save a lot of us pastors and other church leaders a lot of headaches, and it would save a lot of churches a lot of splits. 
This morning, as we pick up in chapter 4 in the book of Acts, as we examine Luke's very, very detailed description of the early happenings and the development of that, that early church and what an exciting time it was. And up to now, there's been really a positive response from the world around that early group of believers gathered in Jerusalem after Pentecost where Peter preached so powerfully under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and thousands came to the Lord. Oh, listen, the church was thriving under the influence of the Holy Spirit because as Peter preached Filled with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God came down. And the Bible tells us over and over in those early chapters that those early believers making up the church were filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. When the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people, things happen. Wonderful things happen. Powerful things happen. And we see this described over and over in the book of Acts. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 31, where I'll draw your attention... You may remember Peter and John had just been arrested by the Sanhedrin, uh, inspired by the Sadducees who were just terribly incensed that they were preaching this resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and the Sanhedrin warned them not to do that anymore, but they released him. They released him, which was a miracle because this is the same religious body that had pronounced a death sentence upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they were released. Peter and John went back to their friends, the, the other church members, and, and shared with them what, what a miracle God had worked. And, and so in verse 31, after they had prayed, it says, and when they had prayed, and oh, what a prayer they must have prayed, worshiping God, praising God, acknowledging His greatness and, and their absolute dependence upon the Lord. And it says in verse 31 of Acts chapter 4, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Boy, wouldn't it be great to be part of such a church. Well, ladies and gentlemen, to, to some extent, Realizing that what took place back then, 2,000 years ago in that first church, was absolutely unique. Never to be duplicated again because it falls right on the heels of Pentecost. It was the beginning of the church. There were signs that were being worked, that were miracles that were being worked that we won't see. Simply because that was done for, that, for the initiation of the church. But still, we can experience a great movement of God's Holy Spirit as the church today. But Luke summarizes beginning in verse 32 and it's interesting because it's almost identical to the summary that you find of the activities that Luke gives us in the earlier chapter chapter 2 in verses 44 through 47 it's, they come in a re reversed order but let's just read as Luke is summarizing now we know the spirit of God has fallen upon that early church they're filled with the Holy Spirit it says now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul Neither did any, anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, it's interesting. Stop there just a second. What was it the Sanhedrin told them just before they left? Just to, don't be preaching this resurrection thing. So they're out there preaching with boldness. What? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, listen, you take the resurrection, the bodily glorious resurrection of Christ Jesus out of the gospel formula, you don't have a gospel. And you and I don't have a prayer. 
of, of eternal life. So naturally they're going to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Now, a lot of this Luke had already said in, in chapter 2. This is very much the same thing. But he's just reiterating that this phenomenal uh, atmosphere of, of the early church is going on and going on. It wasn't a one-time occurrence. It's, it's continuing on. Why? Because the Spirit of God is at work in the hearts of the people of God. I would encourage you this morning as we look at this segment of God's Word that you also, as church members, that you also be willing to ask the Lord, Lord, am I positioned? Am I available? Am I willing for you to fill me with your presence, with your spirit, so that I could likewise have that kind of an impact upon this congregation? You know what a spirit-filled church is? It's not a charismatic church. It's not a church that's jumping over pews and, and barking like dogs and handling snakes. Let me tell you what a, a spirit-filled church is. It's a church predominantly made up of spirit-filled Christians. Don't go moaning and groaning because your church is not spirit-filled if you're not willing to be filled yourself. Every one of us has an opportunity to be a part of a spirit-filled church. It begins with you. It begins with me. And so what we see here is almost uh, an ideal community. And that would definitely get the attention of the Greeks in town and the Jews in town. Because you see, in, in history, we know that ancient Greeks, they yearned for, they dreamed of, they philosophized about an ideal society where people would come together and there'd be no selfishness. Even in Plato's philosophies, he talked about this ideal utopia society where people would not be selfish. They would be caring. They would be sharing. Now, oh, it was just a wonderful thing. It was a myth. But that's what they idealized. And even for the Jews, if you go back in the Old Testament, you know in the book of Deuteronomy, and you'll see that they, the, 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 the ancient laws of the Jews projected to a time when Messiah would come. And, and, and there he would have all the people under his reign and, and the Messiah would lead the people to, to be caring and, and everybody would be loving and there would be no needs and, and there would be no poverty because everybody would be caring for one another. So either the Greeks or the Jews, when they saw what was happening... That's why some of the, even the, the secular writers of that time, historical writers, or even those who were philosophers in describing this phenomena called the church, they couldn't help but notice that there's something absolutely supernaturally different about this body of believers, the way that they relate. And so what we find here, described by Luke in these verses in chapter 4, the closing verses in chapter 4, is almost like an ideal community that is qualified by four characteristics. Number one, there was a unity of mind and spirit. There was a, a unity of mind and spirit. When it talks about they were all who believed were of one heart and one soul. You see, this is one thing that Satan hates the most. 
Oh, he loves churches that are fragmented and, and divided and, and nitpicking. Oh, he loves that. He, he can do some great work in there. Or I should say great damage in there. But, oh, but he hates it. He hates it when God's people come together and are unified and are connected and work and work in, in worship in oneness. He hates to see a church that is unified. But here we find the body of believers. It says those who were believed were of one mind and one spirit. Why? Because they were all connected by the Spirit of God. You know what? This was an answer to prayer. It was. It was an answer to one of Jesus' most powerful prayers. His pastoral prayer, if you would, just before he was crucified, <coughs> excuse me, crucified in John chapter 17, the Lord prayed. And I'm just going to give a segment of that wonderful prayer. I like to think of it as the real Lord's prayer, as God, as God the Son is praying to God the Father. Listen to his words there in John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not pray for those alone, talking about his disciples then, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's talking about the first church. He's talking about you and me. But listen to what he says. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that, you, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Do you understand? The good shepherd's heart's desire was that his people, those who would come to the faith through the preaching and the proclamation of the apostles would be a wonderful body unified just as God the Father and God the Son are one. So will the church be. And so when that first church began to display such a unity of mind and spirit, they were fulfilling that wonderful prayer given by the Lord himself. But then there was the sharing of possessions. Not just some, but all their possessions. And I want to just say, this was voluntary. Nobody was compelled, nobody was ordered to go and sell their belongings for the benefit of the body. No, this was something that was done by free will, but it was occurring. And it says, it says there that they uh, shared the, all their possessions, what was their own. They had all things in common there in verse 32. It's interesting in the Greek, literally, it says everything was in common with them. It was spirit-led, it was love-based, and as I said, it was voluntary. But then there was also the power and the witness of the, of the apostles. My goodness, these men were filled with the Spirit of God. They were on fire for Jesus Christ. We'll see evidence of that. We've already seen it, but we'll continue to see that. It says in verse 33, and with great power, not some power, but with great power, I might add supernatural power, power that comes from the throne of God. And as people heard these men preach and they saw the great works and miracles that they were doing, oh my goodness, what was a powerful witness that was as they preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then also there was abundant grace of God upon them. That's what the Bible says in verse 33. And great grace was upon them all. Whose grace? God's grace. You see, when God's people are focused on Him 
And God's people are quick to confess and repent of their sins and open for the filling of the Holy Spirit and are willing to be what God has called us to be and that is righteous vessels in His hands for His glory. Let me tell you something. God will pour out His grace upon that church. Why? Because it's His people for His glory. And nothing makes the Lord feel better. And there was powerful preaching going on. There was convincing supernatural miracles that the apostles were doing in that day. God blessed them with the favor of the public for the most part. And then God also grew the church exponentially to demonstrate that he was with them. All of this was was the result of the powerful movement of the Spirit of God working in the hearts and the minds of those early believers. And brothers and sisters, it can happen today. One of the reasons that there are no more authentic Holy Spirit-filled churches out there today is because, I'm afraid, 21st century man, 21st century Christians, 21st century pastors have convinced themselves that with all of our technology and all of our skills and all of our intelligence and all of our talents, that you know what? We can do God's work on our own. We can design our own programs and we can can create our own so-called miracles and therefore we get the glory. Folks, that'll quench the Holy Spirit faster than a water hose on a birthday candle. When we try to do God's work in our own strength, in our own ability, listen, that's almost a slap in the face of Almighty God. And so you wonder why our church is not spirit-filled anymore. Because the Spirit of God's not welcome in the church like it was supposed to be. God told us all the way back in the Old Testament book at that prophet Zechariah in chapter 4 verse 6. He says, not by strength, not by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God knew that for his church to be what he had called it to be, what he died for it to be on the cross, that it would have to be absolutely, totally dependent upon him. And might we take a lesson from that? That's not to say that we ought to diminish the resources that God brings to us, whether that be through people or finances or through other resources. Sure, those are all things that God wants us to utilize, but not depend upon them. Depend upon the Lord. Every time we see a challenge, every time we have an opportunity, one of the first things we ought to do, and I give you permission, all of you, remind me as a pastor, if we've not gotten on our knees before God, if we've not come together collectively before the Father and said, Oh Lord, we need you. If this is to happen, we need you. If we're going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, we are going to have to depend totally upon you, Lord. It's got to be your spirit working through us. And Lord, do what you want to do. That kind of yieldedness is what prompts the filling of the Holy Spirit. We see the model, the, just as we saw the ideal community qualified here. We also see as we approach verses 36 and 37, what I consider to be a model Christian exemplified. So we've seen the ideal church community qualified. Now let's take a look at the ideal Christian exemplified. Now there are no perfect Christians. I realize I just burst somebody's bubble. I'm sorry. But fact is there are no. Somebody said, well, I'm, you know, I'm looking around. I'm waiting until I find the perfect church. Good luck. I'll be the first to tell you we're not a perfect church. 
this church does not have perfect pastors. It does not have perfect deacons. We have some mighty good deacons, but none of them are perfect. We don't have any perfect church members. You know why? Because we're all sinners saved by the grace of God, still subject to sinful flesh nature, walking around in an evil, sinful world that is working against us daily. You'll never find a perfect church. But you'll find some mighty good churches. You'll find some mighty good Christians. And we see one right here. His name was Joseph. Or Joseph. In verse 36. And Joseph. Who was also named Barnabas. By the apostles. Which is translated son of encouragement. Boy wouldn't you like to have that as your nickname. Hey son of encouragement. You know, instead of somebody looking at you and saying, Help, cyberpuss! <laughs> hey, gloom and doom! <laughs> really great! Somebody just, you know, off the cuff. Hey, sister of encouragement, brother of encouragement, son of encouragement. What a, what a wonderful, that says a lot about Barnabas. But you know, that's not the only thing the scripture says about this man called Barnabas. And I'm just going to give you, because we're going to look at this as we move further over in the book of Acts. But you know, when the apostle Paul had his wonderful Damascus Road experience and and Christ got a hold of him and converted him right on the spot and called him into missions work to to evangelize the Gentiles. You know, uh, the early church, the very one we're looking at right here, James and Peter and John and all the apostles and the uh, the thousands of believers, particularly the, the disciples. Well, you see, Paul used to be Saul of Tarsus. You know, he used to persecute the church. He had that reputation. He was known to go around, drag Christians out of their homes, either kill them or throw them in prison. You know what I mean? He's just a bad dude. And and now he's converted. He goes back to Jerusalem from Damascus because they were threatening to kill him up there. The Jews were. So he goes goes back to Jerusalem where we are here, the first church. And he shows up on the scene Peter and James and John and all the disciples and everything. And just like the devil, like the guy with the devil suit burst into the, 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 the church house that night. Imagine Saul of Tarsus busting right into the middle of the disciples. He says, hey guys, I'm on your side. Ooh, yeah, right. <laughs> Save me next, fellas. It's Paul, Saul. It's hard breaking into a, 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 a church when you're, you've been the enemy I mean, it'd be like some dude down here at the Thurston Hole, whatever that little bar is on the side of 109. You know, one of those many bikers. Not, and, and let me qualify. There's some wonderful bikers out there, okay? So I don't want the Hell's Angels parked at my door tonight. So, but, but I'm just saying, let's just say there was one down there that particularly hated Baptist churches, and he decided he was just going to terrorize the church constantly. He's always riding his motorcycle by, blaring, you know, revving up the engine while we're trying to do prayer meeting or something like that, and he's throwing dynamite out here in front and exploding, you know, and, and, and sticking his pit bull on the preacher and stuff like that and just imagine then that same guy walks in chains and leather and comes in the sanctuary all of a sudden you know who's going to run to him and throw their arms? oh welcome grizzly bear <laughs> we'll probably say oh yeah yeah somebody check out get some deacons <laughs> Saul had a hard time breaking into that early church but you know who stepped in for him do you know who came to his side Do you know who risked his reputation to help Saul Tarsus, now known as Paul, get a foothold in the early church? Luke tells us there in in chapter 9 
I'll just let you look at that very quickly. You can listen to me in verse 26. It says, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Acts 9.26. Acts 9.27. But Barnabas, son of encouragement, but Barnabas took him and brought him. He didn't just write a letter. See, most of us would have done that. Wrote a letter of reference. That way you're still not really tied to him. You know what I mean? It's safe. Y'all let, y'all let Saul in. He won't kill you. <laughs> no, no. He took him. Come on. Come on. Paul, Saul, whatever your name is. Come on. I want you to meet Peter. And, he, and look what it says in verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he, talking about Saul, Paul, had seen the Lord on the road and, and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. Coming in and going out. He's going out to lunch with Peter. He's over there playing racquetball with James. You know, picnicking with the Bartholomew. Hey, he's one of them. How? Because Barnabas was that kind of a guy. He was that kind of a guy. He was a man with a loving spirit, but he was also a man with a godly spirit. How do we know that? Because not only was Saul of Tarsus called to be a part of the church, but you know, Christ says, I got a mission for you. I have a mission for you, Saul, Paul. You're going to evangelize the Gentiles. You're going to be the missionary to the Gentiles. Now somebody had to help him get going. Somebody had to help sponsor him. Because the word was out about Saul of Tarsus. And who, who would do that? Well, in chapter 11 of Acts, and we won't go there for the sake of time, but in verse 24 it says, here comes Barnabas again. Come on, Saul. And for the first segment of that time and period in, Saul's, in Paul's life, it always talked about Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas took the lead. He led him on his missions trip, telling him what he should do. But you know the interesting thing, and I think the commendable thing is that over time, as Paul became more and more equipped and, and, and filled with the Spirit and able he began to emerge and eventually it began to talk about Paul and Barnabas. And do you know what? Barnabas began to drift on back into the background. He never wrote a book of the Bible. His name was not splashed all over like, you know, when's the last time you heard the Catholic Church named St. Barnabas? Did they ever have a Pope named Barnabas? But anyway, lots of Pauls, right? John Paul, Paul III, Paul V. I, hey, look. Everybody wants to be Paul. But what I'm saying is Barnabas exemplified a Christian. He's unselfish. He's willing to give of himself. He's understanding. He's an encourager. He's somebody you can trust in and depend upon. Why? Because Barnabas was filled with the Spirit of God. Now I'll take you back to Acts chapter 4 because I don't want you to miss the main thing. Because it says in verse 37, Barnabas being a Levite, which is interesting because the Old Testament law said the Levites didn't possess land. So by the first century Judaism, they probably had relaxed that rule because right here it tells us Barnabas was a Levite and he had some land in Cyprus. Nice island off the coast there in the Mediterranean Sea. Well, anyway, having land, he sold it and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
He was filled with the Spirit. He couldn't give enough of himself for the body of Christ. He couldn't give enough of himself for the servants of God. He couldn't give enough of himself for the expediency of the gospel going out. Now that, my dear friend, not a perfect Christian, but it sure is a good example to model after. If you want to model after anybody in the Bible apart from Christ, who is the perfect being, I'd suggest you go back and take a good look at Barnabas and just say, Lord, make me a Barnabas. Oh, how I would love to have a whole slew of Barnabases at Cornerstone. All of us can be a Barnabas. Do you understand? All of us can be a Barnabas. And so, and I think the scripture says, though it's brief, I think the scripture has inserted that to help us to see that the church is thriving under the influence of the Holy Spirit. But just as quick as lightning, Satan sneaks in. Isn't that the way it is? Isn't that the way it is? You let God's people be on track and on fire for the Lord, doing great things in the community and around the world for the name of, the Christ, of Christ and, and, and having wonderful worship services. And you think, did you think for a minute that old Slewfoot, that's a nickname for the devil, do you think he, he's going to stand back and not do something? Somebody, wise old preacher told me when I first started in the pastorate. He said, son, don't you worry about when the devil's attacking you. That just means you're on, you're on track for the Lord. That just means y'all doing something right. He says, when you get worried, it's when the devil's not messing with you. Because you and your church are no threat to him. Now, I don't go out there welcome in trouble, y'all, here. And I sure don't invite the devil to come in and stir up things, no. But you know, when the devil likes to attack God's people, it's because he feels most threatened. And boy, did he feel threatened. And I want you to see right here in the Scriptures, according to the writings of Luke, in the book of Acts in chapter 5, the church suffers from sin's infiltration. You know, it's interesting. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is anointed, you know, is baptized and, and, and pretty much, uh, you know, uh, appointed by the Father to go on his ministry, start his ministry, his redemptive ministry here on, on the earth. And right just like that, here comes the devil. Out there in the wilderness where Jesus is fasting. And he begins to tempt him. Why? Because he wanted to derail the Lord. He wanted to distract or discourage or disillusion or disqualify the Messiah. Now, he's going to do the same thing with the body of Christ because these are God's people. He's not going to sit back idly and watch the church do its thing. And he sure wasn't going to do it in the book of Acts. And so he finds himself a strategy. It's interesting. Satan's strategies to cripple the early church came in two waves. First, it was from without. Remember, I told you, we saw it in chapter 4. As soon as they're out there preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ, here come the Sadducees. They were so sad, you see, because they didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in a lot of things. I mean, you talk about a bunch of stick in the muds. But anyway, they couldn't stand it. So they bring the Sanhedrin guards and they arrest Peter. So Satan says, I'll tell you, I, I know what I'll do. I'll just squash this early upstart bunch of believers. I'll just squash them from the outside. So he brought in the Sanhedrin thinking they'd be so intimidated knowing that the Sanhedrin had condemned and crucified Christ that that would do it. 
all it would take is one visit to the Sanhedrin. But instead, it backfired. It backfired. Because the Sanhedrin realized they didn't have anything. They were afraid of these two apostles who were speaking with power. And they understood the people were, that they were popular with the people. They weren't about to do anything with them. So they just threatened them and released them. Well, that was just like throwing fuel on the fire. To Peter and John, they, they went back and they were excited. Hallelujah, you just won't believe what God did. Not only has he healed this lame man, but he's delivered us from the Sanhedrin. We're on the right track. Let's go. So they had a prayer meeting and called upon the name of the Lord. And they gave God glory. And it says the power of the Spirit fell down upon that early bunch of believers in that room so much that God just shook the walls. Whew. So trying to get at them from the outside didn't work. So he said, hmm, plan B. I'll just work on the inside. And so he found a couple who were almost like a a type of an Adam and Eve in the New Testament. Except their names were Ananias and Sapphira. Here they were in almost perfect environment. They'd experienced Pentecost. They'd experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They saw the miracles of the apostles. They heard the preaching of Peter and James and, and John. They they witnessed the thousands coming into the body of Christ. They saw the spirit of unity and love. Oh, listen, they had the benefit of it all. Just like Adam and Eve had the benefit of paradise. And yet, all it takes is Satan. And he begins to whisper in your ears. And he whispered into their ears. You, you, You see that Ananias, Sapphira? Do you see how all these people... Look at, look at Barnabas. Look at how the people are praising him. Patting him on the back and saying, what a good fellow, because he sold his land and gave it to the church. And Ananias, see old pride and greed starts kicking in. Now don't sit there too smugly thinking that never happened to you. Oh, yes, it can. Pride's in everybody. And there's some greed deep down there. So let me tell you, you're just as subject as they are. So don't judge them. But what happened was he tapped in on the very place where they were weak. They wanted that. Their pride says, I want that praise. But their greed says, not that much. So they said, hmm, what can we do? I'm paraphrasing. Y'all, we'll pick up in the scripture here. But, but Ananias said, honey, I'll tell you what. <laughs> just you and me, right? Nobody else knows. Let's take that old swampy piece of property down there we got and, and let's sell it for a thousand dollars but but don't tell anybody and we're gonna, we're gonna just take 500 of it and stash it in our cds they didn't have them back then but anyway and we're gonna keep it for ourselves and then we're gonna take the other 500 we'll go before the apostles and the church and we're gonna say here's all that we got out of our land proceeds aren't we wonderful so you had a scheming husband <clears throat> Prompted by pride and greed and a cooperating wife. And this is exactly what happened. Let's look in chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife. You know, I was just trying to think. I don't know of too many people that named their kids Ananias and Sapphira. Just like, you know, you know Judas. There's certain names you just kind of steer around. But anyway, there, there might be some. And if your nickname or your middle name is Ananias or Sapphira, I apologize. Okay? Alright, but anyway, they sold their possession, verse 2, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, the crime is committed here. Oh, if, if they had just only understood 
that Jesus hated hypocrites. Now, now he loved all people, but he hated hypocrisy. I won't take the time to read, but if you go back in chapter five, uh, chapter six of Matthew, and Jesus is teaching the kingdom of God, he talked about those people who just give so other people can see them. They they just pray so other people can hear them. They fast and mess up their hair and get long faced and look like they're starved and you know suck up their gut so other people can see. You know they walk around. I've been fasting for thirty minutes. Oh please, you know. Feel sorry for me. Oh, all they want is attention. All they, their pride is driving them to do the right things for the wrong reasons. Jesus says they got their reward. God has nothing to do with them. So let me ask you real quick, just in case there's a little bit of Ananias and Sapphira deep down in your soul. Do you do what you do for the church, for the Lord? so that other people will take note and praise you. If you are, brother or sister, you are wasting your time. Not only that, you are committing a sin called hypocrisy. You're acting like one thing. These are the people that come in and sing how they love Jesus on Sunday morning, and then they live like the devil for the rest of the week. You know, you may think just like Ananias and Sapphira. You may think smugly in your heart, I'm getting over. (laughs) Pastor didn't pick up on it. Deacons didn't catch me. Man, I'm smooth sailing. You know, the Bible is very clear. Over there in Numbers 32, 23, it says, Your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. In Proverbs 13, 18, the scripture tells us poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline, but he who regards reproof will be honored. Cherish the fact that you have a brother or sister in the Lord or a church that will come to you in love and point out sin in your life. You ought to hug their neck. You ought to welcome them. You ought to thank God for them. Because if you're not willing to stand up to it and own up to it, one day you'll stand before the one who will hold you eternally accountable for that. You know, look, we don't get over on God. It's like I always declare my mother must have had a whole set of eyeballs in the back of her head. I know, I know. Because there's no way you watch 11 children at the same time and I, she'd be over there, and I think the baby had her distracted, and one of the toddlers over here crying and whining, and, you know, food on the oven. And I think, oh, now's the perfect time. Get that, that sister of mine that's been aggravating me, you know. She found it. No getting over on Mama. There's no getting over on God. And Ananias and Sapphira found out. How do we know? Verse 3. Peter said, Ananias. Where has Satan filled your heart? See, Peter went right to the source. He knew who was behind this. He knew who had come up with this diabolical plot. He says, what in the world are you letting Satan manipulate you? Filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Now, I, I, I had to think for a second. See, they, Ananias was not with his wife Sapphira at the time. So when Peter... Nailed him just like that. I wonder if the thought went through his mind. That gun, that woman. I, I knew she wouldn't keep her trap close. She'd have gone off and told her. No, no, she didn't, because she would be just as shocked. But look, look at verse four. 
while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own or in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? But look what he says next. You have not lied to men, but to God. Verse 5. Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. I've often thought, what do people today, you know, instead of giving all that God has prompted their heart to give to kingdom causes, what, what if when the offering plate was going around, you know, and somebody dropped in a little bit, you know, boom, heart attack. Lay on the drag him out. Next person down through, stroke. You know, yeah, if pe- pe- about third of the congregation died at the offering time, I, I, I believe one thing would happen. People would not come back to church anymore or they'd get their checkbooks out the next time around. But, but it, wasn't, it wasn't the money. It was the attitude. To be deceitful to God is nothing but hypocrisy. And God hates that. So it, it was totally unnecessary. You know, Ananias could have come, come in there. He could have come before Peter and said, Hey, Pete, or, or Apostle, Sapphira and I sold our land for $1,000. We'd really like to keep 500 because we got some things, we're going to do a little vacation, whatever. So we're going to give 500 to the church. Do you realize he would have got praise? They would say, thank you. Thank you, that's fine. That's no problem. You see, it was not, they were not given out of compulsion. Nobody demanded you had to give it all. They, they could have give, given anything they wanted to. But he didn't. So he breathed his last. In verse 6, and the young men, Arose. That's because us older guys, we got herniated backs and arthritis, and it would have taken us two weeks to get him out of the assembly. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. They didn't waste time back then. Not only, you know, no funeral, no procession, no wake, no visitation, in the ground. Now it was about three hours later. When his wife came in, she had a hair appointment. She's a little late. <laughs> it sure wouldn't take no man three hours to get his hair done, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Glad my barber spent three minutes. No, he, he does a great job. Okay, all right. Three hours later, when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, so nobody told her, she walks in, thinking that everything is gone just as they had planned. And Peter said to her, How is it? That you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried, I said, buried your dead husband are at the door. I got bad news for you. They're going to take you out too. Not kicking and screaming, but dead as a doornail. Kick. She's like, but. Now, I, I, I realize I, I'm, I'm making light of a very serious phenomenon. Because what you see is church discipline. What you see are spirit-led, spirit-filled leaders exercising divine discipline. How did Peter know? How did he know? Nobody spied, nobody... 
I'll tell you how he knew. God told him. The Spirit of God revealed it to him. And when God revealed it to Peter, he had no choice but to confront. Now, Peter didn't kill him. And, and no church, no pastor, no leader of a church has the right to kill a church member. Now, aren't y'all relieved? That includes deacons. Okay? None of us can kill a church member. But the church discipline is God's work. And He's the one that struck. He's the one that gave an example to the rest of the church, but not only the rest of the church. As we look here, and I'm going to close out. And Peter answered her and said, Tell whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes. It was just like Ananias said. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. They're probably saying, Man, is this going to go on all day long? But anyway, they, they carried her out, buried her by her husband. Verse 11, so great fear. You can insert the word reverence. Deep reverence. Great reverence came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. God had a message. You cooperate with me. You yield yourself to me. You open yourself up to me and my Holy Spirit. I will do great and wondrous things in you that will boggle your mind and bring glory to me. But you try to live a life of hypocrisy. You dare to lie to me with your life. And you are subject to my discipline. And it got the attention of the church. But also it went on out there among the people. Because I believe as we go further, you'll see that even the people of the community said, whoa, joining the church is a good thing, but, but, but you better make sure, you better make sure you're serious. You better make sure you're ready to follow Christ. That may sound a little bit harsh, in these open-minded, receptive 21st century days. But you know, should that not be the message that the church gives to the unsaved world? God forgive us for saying to the world, oh y'all, come on, we're just having fun. You come, anybody can come and be a member of our church. Oh, we're just having fun. We just love everybody. We're going to just have a good time. We're going to eat. We're going to sing. We're going to have fellowship. We're going to go do fun things. Anybody, oh, don't worry about how you live your private life. That's between you. And you wonder why some churches are growing in leaps and bounds? Who wouldn't join a country club like that? But what if the people got the message that, you know what? We are the church. We are the bride of Christ. 
We are the body of believers in Jesus Christ who died for our sins. We're ready to lay down our lives if necessary and die for the cause of the gospel. Not only that, we're ready to die for one another. We are serious. We're willing to give sacrificially of our resources, our time, our abilities, our talents. We are bound by the teachings of the scriptures and we understand that when we allow ourselves to stray, we have given the church permission to discipline us. Because being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is serious business. Nobody, nobody, nobody deserves to have their name on the roll of the church unless they have come to grips with the biblical mandates that anyone who comes to me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Well, preachers, that mean we're just not going to have any fun along the way? It's all going to be... No, we'll have lots of fun. Nothing will stir your heart and exhilarate you more than being a part of sharing the gospel with lost people and seeing them come to Christ or reaching out into the community in the genuine love of the Lord and touching people's lives and helping them to come to Jesus. Nothing will be more exciting than when the church gathers together knowing that we're walking in unity in the Spirit of God and filled with the Spirit of God. Listen, you can't have any more fun than when you're walking close to the Lord. But let's be who God's called us to be. The church. Do you realize what an awesome privilege that is? That you have been chosen. If you're saved, genuinely following Christ, then you're one of few. You are among the elite spiritually. You're in the minority. And what an honor. What a privilege. And you and I will never grasp the fullness of that until we graduate one day and we step over into glory and we see our commander in chief with all those angelic beings and the absolute splendor and glory of heaven all then we'll understand what an awesome privilege it was to be a part of the authentic body of Christ oh may God help us that's my prayer for Cornerstone oh Lord just as you fill that early church with your spirit Let that power come down upon us. May we be just as spirit-filled and authentic for the cause of Christ, for your glory.